Country is a crowd. I'm here today, as always, in the bunker. Again. With her Christmas hats on. It's almost Christmas time, Kelly. I mean, we are Gotta in December. Gotta get festive. Yeah. The bu- it's bunker Christmas somewhere. Bunker weather. <laughs> Just mild throughout. They Unmoving. Turn, they turn on the AC a little bit. It gets a little chilly in here. Oh, uh, Kelly, how's it going this week? Just in general. How's That's your great. life? That's great. Episode 40. What are you, what are you, what's going through your head? I'm thinking about this, this last year and oh, just nice. like, you know what? Good for us. We did this. Us. We've showed up every week. Every week. 40. For negative weeks. money and hung out and talked about Bob Dylan. That was the point. I know. That was the, that so, was our mission statement. We are doing it. And it is the end of uh, the season, but it's not the end of the road by any stretch. Right. We'll have a lot more information on lots of fun stuff we're going to do for the rest of December coming up at the end of this grand episode but first we have to talk about a really great song yes now this is bob dylan podcast we listen to random bob dylan songs that we choose from random.org i have a big spreadsheet it's a big thing if you if this is your first time here you're missing out you don't know get up on sotw pod check it out see all the songs that we've done you can see a big playlist every single song we do is like a its own playlist with music that we love uh, we used to do, uh, every week we would do a mixed up confusion. You can go back and listen to those to kind of get a sense of who we are. There's so much at your fingertips. We thank you for being here in episode 40, but please know lots to take in before and there's so much to come. I've been listening to Bob Dylan for most of my life. Kelly has heard roughly the same number of songs as the number of days, according to the Arabic proverb, that you need to live among a people to understand them. And today Is we're talking 40 days? about... The Ballad of Hollis Brown. Is Noah's Ark 40 days? From 1963's Times They Are Changing. Is something 40 days? Hollis Brown, he lived on the outside of town. Hollis Brown, he lived on the outside of town. With his wife and five children and his cabin broken down. He looked for work and money And you walked a ragged mile You looked for work and money And you walked a ragged mile Your children are so hungry That they don't know how to smile Last week we listened to a cut from the basement tapes Kind of a silly... A silly song. I mean, there's no other way around it. To go from that to something brutally serious. We've done that a couple of times this year where we go from one extreme to the other. Oftentimes we kind of skirt the lines, but did that do anything in particular to you or? It was a shift. It was a huge shift. Yeah. It was Plus weird. it's like Christmas time music and this is very, very sad song. So, I mean, uh, I'm really glad we got to listen to it. It's a really good song. Yeah, it's and it's really right up my song. Bob Dylan alley. If there is one, that's good. the one. Good. Yeah, I think that I think I think context in this case, which is something that again, a little bit of retrospective spirit, uh, was something that we thought about doing all the way back in episode one, only to build on an idea that there these songs exist as a com- as a complete package. And I thought that was a pretty interesting idea at the very beginning. And I think this is one that's going to add to that and keep adding to that idea um, because we have listened to so many songs now. 
uh, with all the albums that we've done, but also just individual Bob Dylan songs. So this song itself, um, the lyrics, as we've talked about before with John uh, John Birch Society Blues, episode 12, if I'm not mistaken. I can remember this shit. Um, these were printed in Broadside, the music. So the lyrics were there before the song. Is that what uh, the, Oh, so Broadside means broadside, words first. Broadside, yeah, it's just, it was a magazine that just had... Oh, okay, yeah. never mind. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> Sorry. Well, they might have got the, 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 the name of it from that, yeah. I have no idea. Right, because... Or that might just be a colloquial term now. I don't know. Broadside. So it was a magazine where people would submit lyrics or poems or something? Yeah, it was just it was a it was a magazine of folk music. Yeah. Oh, and it would just kind of okay. take songs that were on the on the move essentially. And so this one's really cool. And if you follow us on Twitter, you could I'll link to the the magazine. You can go and see it. They're all um, at least the really early ones from the early sixties are on PDF. You can still go and read them. The magazine no longer exists, but they've all been preserved. And the ballad of Hollis Brown, it was called The Rise and Fall of Hollis Brown when it was published. And it has a really, I mean, reminiscent of that, um, you know, 19, Dust Bowl, the Dust Bowl Blues, you know, the Woody Guthrie month that we did, you know, the Dust Bowl mm-hmm. Shack um, that we saw in so many photographs when we were researching right, that. Yeah. yeah, he's got one of Same those kind of on the niche. very bottom of drawing, which I assume he would have done. Um, so this is, I, this is his, right? This is totally his song? Oh, it's totally his song. Okay. Yeah, it's based on it's based on another song, which we'll get to in a moment. So there are multiple recordings of this, which is another song. Bob Dylan doesn't often do that. He'll record a song. It will then go into a vault and never come out again. Think of something like Seven Days, which is pretty relevant here. Seven people die on a self right. uniform. Um, seven Curses. Seven Curses. What did I say? Seven Days? Oh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I meant Seven Curses. Okay. Yeah. He recorded that for Freewheeling Bob Dylan. So this song could have been on his first record, but he shelved it. And instead of letting it die or become like tons of other songs that become bootlegs later on, in August of 1963, he recorded this in four takes, but he wasn't he wasn't into the four takes. So it wouldn't be until the next day he would do it in one take, and that would be the one that showed up on the album. But that day before, August 6th, is important because he also recorded Seven Curses on that day. Oh, wow. Okay. Which now we're starting to see, not only with the sevens, which are important in the song, because seven breezes are blowing, seven people dead on a South Dakota farm. I mean, oh man, he's listen really to those songs rolling. back to back. What a bummer! What a what bummer! A great bummer! And what a world! Yeah. I mean, the seven, the world of seven curses. I think is a world that we're going to live in forever. Both on the times are changing. No, seven curses is not. That's a song that didn't get to make the cut, was shelved, and wasn't heard for real for the general public until 1991. At the so end of this, knows? I'm going to make my own Bob Dylan album. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. I mean, you could great. remake Times They Are Changing, yeah. and it could be way different. I think Seven Curses would have totally fit. But anyway, so he recorded that on the day before, and, and he recorded this, but he wasn't happy. So he cut it in one take on August 7th. August 7th would be important for Times They Are Changing because it netted four original tracks that showed up on the album. Uh, with God on, on Your Side, which you know. I know that one too, yeah. Uh, yeah. Only Upon in Their Game, which is a great song. And the wonderful Boots of Spanish Leather, which is... Um, where Tallest Man on Earth gets his uh, King of Spain from. So, yeah, those four show up on the record. They were all recorded on August 7th, and those all, all three of those and this song are classics. They're so good. Uh, this song is so great. So this is based on Pretty Polly, really old song. We listened um, to that this week. Yeah, so that's on our playlist as well. So the B.F. Shelton version is like the oldest version that I think Spotify has. That's from 1927. Oh. And I think that it illustrates that direct line to Hollis Brown because the subject matter, I don't know if you listened to it I listened it to it, but I like didn't pay attention to the lyrics. I listened to it twice, but I was like, oh, I can hear I can hear the patterns, like why this is a similar song. Pretty Polly, pretty Polly, you're guessing just right. I dove on your grave six long hours of last night. 
He threw her arms round him and suffered no fear. She threw her arms round him and suffered no fear. How can you kill a girl that loves you so dear? He stopped her to the heart, her heart's blood, it did flow. He stopped her to the heart, her heart's blood, it did flow. And into the grave, pretty Polly did go. Polly, yeah, was, he was jealous of maybe something. I think it's it, it kind of varies about why. But essentially he takes her out and uh, murders her in a grave that he's already huh. built for her. Men murdering people they love. Hmm. What an interesting topic. What a strange thing. I don't know if we're going to go into this. So this song was played uh, 212 times total. No shit. A well. lot, lot, of, lot of plays. For, he first played it in 1962, Carnegie Hall. So he was doing this before he even recorded it for, which we saw. Oh, we listened to that, right? Uh, no, we listened to uh, the town hall meeting in 63. Uh, okay. So this was after. But it was another it was another case where that song, just like Seven Curses, we listened to at the town hall. Seven Curses was right at the same time as this, but that song fell out of favor where, thankfully, I think Hollis Brown's a better song. I think Hollis Brown's a much more affecting song than Seven Curses because I think it's way more direct and it really digs at you. I at least, I, if I was going to pick out, I'd probably pick Seven Curses. Okay, actually. see, and that's, and that's great. I think that they're both fantastic But this is way songs. more poignant, like, way for more sure. Poignant. Yeah, and then maybe that's why it stayed. Uh, he brought it back out for the first time after the 60s, after that early 60s, First time in 1985 for Live Aid. So uh, this song, so I, I just want to quote before we get into it, David Horowitz uh, wrote of the song. He said, technically speaking, Hollis Brown is a tour de force. For a ballad is normally a form which puts one at a distance from its tail. The ballad, this ballad, however, is told in the second person present tense, so that not only is the bond forged immediately between the listener and the figure of the tale, but there is an ironic fact that the only ones who know of Hollis Brown's plight, the only ones who care, are the hearers who are helpless to help, cut off from him, even as we in a mass society are cut off from one another. Indeed, the blues perspective itself, uncompromising, isolated, and sardonic, is superbly suited to express the squalid reality of contemporary America, and what a powerful expression it can be once it has been liberated, as it has been in Dylan's hands, uh, from its egocentric bondage. He prayed to the Lord above, oh, please send you a friend. He prayed to the Lord above, oh, please send you a friend. You ain't got no money, man, you ain't got no friend. Your babies are crying louder now, it's a pounding on your brain. Your babies are crying louder now, it's pounding on your brain. Your wife screams a stabbing you like the dirty driving rain. So Kelly, there are two seminal things happening in the Ballad of Hollis Brown. One of them is murder, specifically the murder of one's family. I say that with a smile on my face. I just like grew a smile. I don't know why. That's terrible. Shouldn't admit that on, <laughs> on tape. And the other is living on a South Dakota farm. It's true. As of the year 2000, 4,700 black people live in South Dakota. That's a 322% increase from 1960. Wow. So we're looking at less than 1,000 black Americans living in South Dakota during the time that Bob's writing this song. And again, Hollis Brown, this is not dated. It's not in 1960. I see it more in the Seven Curses 
Old West. Right. These are people. Not this, even Dust Bowl. Like these are like 1800s. 1800s. Yeah. Is this a re- not a real story? No, Dust Bowl oh, is not I a real. Oh, I thought for sure this was a real story. In Town Hall. This is called Hollis Brown. It's a true story. Yeah. It's not a true story. Hollis Brown is a, hand, a stand-in for Bob Dylan's a fucking liar. <laughs> Judas. <laughs> hey. It's like he just learned that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I believe he learned that on day one. I know, but he still gets to do that <laughs> bastard. So not a real story, but it's a stand-in. Um, and so the living outside of town isn't just like metaphorical. It's like the town is almost like the affluence of America, which is just for white people. It, it's not even in, – in reality, with a thousand people in an entire state, you are living outside of town. You are living not among anyone else who looks like you. Oh, yeah. But I think you're also – living outside of you know you know what horowitz was saying you know the squalid reality of contemporary america so i tried to find information on um black migration to south dakota in particular but i couldn't really find it because there wasn't like a seminal moment however there is a seminal moment going to kansas something near and dear to my heart as somebody who lived in kansas for over two years i want to talk about the exodusters Cool. I thought you said Exo Squad. This is Lieutenant J.T. Marsh, member of the Exo Fleet, leader of a small band of E-frame pilots dedicated to freeing humanity from Neo-Sapien rule. We are the Exo Squad. What is the Exo Squad? So yeah, you brought up Exo Dusters. Which I'm, I want you to tell me all about. Yeah. But I was like, immediately went to Exo Squad, which was a cartoon in the early 90s. Uh, it ran for only two seasons from 1993 to 1995. Just on like ABC? Or? I think it was a Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, I don't know. Somewhere. My brother was really into it. And he's seven years older than me. So automatically anything he liked was like the coolest thing. Okay, yeah. But it's actually a really fucking cool cartoon. And I, I went back to watch it a couple of years ago. But I only made it for the, through the first... So I was like, I want to relive moment nostalgia no, moment. I'm going to wake up Saturday mornings and eat a big bowl oh. of cereal with an oversized spoon and watch cartoons because I'm an adult. And you did it once, and then the next morning, Sunday, Saturday, I was like, fuck it. Yeah, like, I'm actually an adult and yeah, I have bills to pay. I, I can't, can't just, yeah, <laughs> can't do this. But Exo Squad was one of them. So it was, uh, it's like a, the, the genres of it was like space opera, action, adventure. It was a response to Japanese anime yeah. at the time. Um, but it's about this interplanetary war between humans and neo-sapiens which are a fictional race of artificially created workers slash slaves uh that the terrans created so it's go figure the terrans the earth people created this race of other people to enslave, <laughs> to, to enslave and, and terraform other planets venus this and mars are a big thing off the brand of this episode yeah exactly Whoa, which is crazy yeah, it's crazy um it follows able squad so i'm like not only like able what a fucking problematic thing to call your team but okay uh, which are an elite e-frame which is a mech suit uh, exo frame fighting squad uh, on their missions around the solar system it was canceled after the second season but it was considered the one of the most underrated cartoons of all time it was meant for kids but it, it dealt with obvious issues of race uh politics religion and uh it, it was a, it dealt with a lot of big themes. Yeah. I mean, that's we're talking about enslaving a fucking race of people. That's was, hard to do. It was G.I. Joey in animation, yeah. but actual had substance. I mean, really looking cool. at it, I mean, in, if you're curious about it, <laughs> please Google it or go to our Twitter because we got that shit. Yeah. It is a mess of color, mm-hmm. and I don't know what's happening. It gives me, like, palpitations because I don't know if I can 
follow or want to follow but that's like exactly what a kid that's what I would have loved yeah so kid. I mean I fucking love sci-fi stuff it's yeah. set in the 20 21 22 something okay. like that so about 100 years from now yeah um, it's not too far yeah yeah it okay. but it's uh, as children's things are want to do they created a toy line and it's like one of the most excellent toy lines ever my again my brother <laughs> Went nuts and yeah. went back to collect all of the toys. And they're really exceptional. They're just, like, a great quality, well done. Um, they're mech suit warrior things, but I don't know. They're very cool. Anyway, the shows, if you want to check it out, Excess Squad, that's what I thought you were talking about. You're not. You're no. not talking about interplanetary no. combat. What are we talking about? No, we're talking about exodusters. Exodusters. In a fit of madness, I one day said to the man I was renting from, it's no use. I works hard and raises big crops. And you sell it and keeps the money and brings me more and more in debt. So I will go somewhere else and try to make headway like white working men. So I told my wife and she says, let us take to the woods in the nighttime. Well, we took to the woods, my wife and four children. And we was three weeks living in the woods waiting for a boat. Then a great many more black people came and we was all together at the landing. Before long, the Grand Tower hove up and we got on board. Says the captain, where's you going? Says I, Kansas. John Solomon Lewis. So what exactly is an exoduster? We've learned what an exospace terror... Exosquad member. Exosquad member is. So on the one hand, you're a part of the great migration of blacks who left the South after the Civil War and after Reconstruction ended. If you listened two weeks ago, we talk about the end of Grant. Your dude, Grant, yeah. And how terrible the end of Reconstruction became after he was president and things just went to shit because he was the one thing holding it together. Sort of. It's complicated. But, yeah, essentially, when that was over, uh, you just went back to white power. Jim Crow was being ushered in. And blacks needed to get the fuck out. And so a lot of the impetus is moving to the, the North, i.e., like Chicago, Detroit, um, New York, that kind of stuff. But there was a lot of people that didn't. Yeah, just went the other way. Especially people in Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, Louisiana, places on the Mississippi to get up there. And then you're in St. Louis. Uh-huh. Take the Missouri River over. So it's a little different from coming from Georgia or South Carolina. You're kind of like, a little you go up and yeah. you just kind of hit New York. and So it's a little bit just kind of different. And then the other intersection was the Homestead Act. So the Homestead Act, which... Is really important in American history. Your parents, depending on where you live, your your ancestors probably were homesteaders in some way or another. I know my family, uh, it wasn't until the 1900s, so we missed the, the homestead stuff. But homesteading didn't actually end until 1976, as I learned. So homesteading, if, if you don't know, is where the government for free gives you public land. Public land being the land you took from the Indians. Right, right, so, right. of course, there's that caveat, of course. Uh, but essentially 10% of the country was given away to fr- for free f- to 1.6 million people over the whole program. And you were given 160 acres, build a, build a house. We The government will give you the deed when you make it a farm that's actually running, when it's a real thing. And so 1.6 million people did that and got the title to their land, which I think about today, I mean, I wish that there was more land in the world. I would love to be a homesteader. I mean, that's like kind of the movement that I want to be on board with. Right, Let's I know. So homesteading's gone. The last homesteader was in Alaska. Uh, 1986 was the last homestead. Uh, those, that was the last spot. Uh, he didn't actually get his homesteader uh, certificate until 1988 because he f- fulfilled his obligations 
and he's the last one, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but anyways, so the intersection between the Great Migration and the Homestead Acts, uh, 1862 was the big one. That was 160 acres, 270 million acres of public land given away. But then there was also failed ones like the Southern Homestead Act of 1866, which tried to take the land that was there in the South and give it to black people. But of course, it ran into the problems that you expect it to run into. White people. We're really not into it, of course. So the exodusters specifically relate to migration to Kansas. That's very particular. But I think we can glean a lot of Hollis Brown and where he, what, what happened to him if he was an exoduster and then he just sort of migrated north. Uh, for the long time, it only referred to the initial 4,000 people that came uh, in 1879. Uh, but it's now regarded as a slow increase in Kansas over the course of a, a decade, essentially ending in 1888 when it, the railroads kind of solidified. And the towns that didn't get a, a railroad, like so many towns in the Midwest, became ghost towns. And Nicodemus is the most famous town of this um, in Kansas of the exoduster movement. And you can still go to Nicodemus today. I went multiple times when I lived in Kansas. It is a powerful place to be. It's really cool. But it's a really tiny town. And when you start driving around and you start to think, oh, my God, people tried to farm on this, you start to see why things didn't really work out. Um, so why Kansas? We don't know. It's closer than California or Oregon. <laughs> yes. But also because of John Brown and because oh, uh, yeah, of that abolitionists. Guy. Absolutely. Uh, so before the Civil War even happened, the defense of abolitionism, the Jayhawkers, all of the bleeding Kansas uh, was to make it a free state. And I think when consciousness was shifting, that was something people thought of. A young man wrote the governor of Kansas in 1879, and he said, quote, I'm very anxious to reach your state, not just because of the great race now made for it, but because of the sacredness of her soil washed by the blood of humanitarians for the cause of black freedom. And as a lover of Kansas, I say, hey, Kansas, lean into that. Lean Remember into that shit. that shit. Let's make that America is, great again for that That's my shit. Kansas, yeah. man. That's my fucking Kansas. Uh, fuck this, like, weird conservative politic. What's the matter with Kansas? You guys got to get snapped out of that shit, man. Uh, so anyways, what happened when they arrived? So the North, as we've discussed in Grant, uh, were not happy about that. And so Hollis Brown, somebody going, to, would have faced a lot of opposition. You know why? Because uh, black emancipation is cool as long as it's an ideal and it's not actually asking the North to have black people move into their neighborhoods. So sure enough, when slave former slaves were wanting to escape white violence... They were, they were nonplussed. Not only that, but the Democratic majority in Congress uh, ensured that no legislation would be passed to support the Exodus movement. So these people found themselves, a lot of them, stranded in St. Louis, and they had no money. And uh, ferrymen, uh, steamboats were a new thing. They, they wouldn't take them across the river because St. Louis wanted to stay white and stay lily and stay clean and, and not do any of that. Uh, and the South said, uh, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine, guys. It's fine. Uh, and these poor blacks uh, were being misled by rabble-rousers, you know, paid by Russia and George Soros. They were just, they're fake, fake news. They weren't yeah. real. No. So like today, the idea of universal suffrage for everybody who's not male or white is just some ploy. And in this case, it was the Republican Party to get black votes, which by saying that is essentially confirming that black votes didn't exist in the South. Because if you're saying, like, black people should stay in the South, but the only reason anybody who supports black people moving is for voting— then you're implying that they can't vote down there. So you're almost implicitly saying, we, we, the Democratic Party, want black people to stay down here because 
they can't they can vote these are air quotes i'm doing they can vote but they really can't mm. but when they actually go somewhere where they can vote now it's a problem and that's american democracy in a nutshell we don't actually want everyone to vote so st louis became a hub for black people and communities and um Committees had to be set up to feed and move them on the journey. So eventually that does happen. People start to go. Um, when they get out, they settle in the uplands of Kansas. But when you're driving through there, if, any, if you've ever been to Kansas, if you've ever seen it, you imagine that it's lush and it's got corn and it's got all the stuff. And for the most part, for the most part, Kansas is that. I mean, it, it does create a lot of – it's a breadbasket. I mean, there's wheat. There's all kinds of stuff. When you think of Kansas, when you think of the Midwest, what do you think of food? You think of – Beer, you think of. I mean, I just think of desolation. Driving through it so many it's times, not it's just like nothing. It's not desolation. There are parts of it that are desolation, yeah. uh, but no, no. Suppose Iowa is like Kansas. the most beautiful farmland ever. Okay, didn't drive through Iowa, Kansas every time though. Kansas again, it's on the Missouri River. You, the further you get from the river, the worse it's going to be because the Missouri goes north, it keeps going up. There's no rivers. And then the Red River is down there in Oklahoma. So we're in this weird deserty part. And it yeah. does become a semi-arid uh, wasteland. The best land was already taken. It was taken by the railroads. It was taken by squatters, by speculators. That was a huge problem with the Homestead Act. And so the only land left to be homesteaded was that up, you know, northern Kansas, which sucked. And if you're, if you're there, it is really a bizarre drive because coming from Colorado – it's a little bit it's a little bit iffy but if you're coming from the other way you see this just green pastures all the way through and then suddenly it becomes desert suddenly the crags start to happen suddenly it becomes these drop-off ravines hmm. nobody could possibly farm on this land so the fact that they eked out a, a society if you will in nicodemus for about 10 years before it declined rapidly is pretty miraculous just in and of itself. So during that time, communities relied on railroads. And so many uh, Midwestern states, you can go to Wikipedia and look up their ghost towns in Kansas. It's hundreds of towns that are ghost towns. They were banking on the railroad coming through. And if they did, they would still be around today and it would have been a different town that would have gone under. And looking at the map today, it's really crazy. So there's a terminus in Stockton, which is... Um, right to the east of Nicodemus. So just imagine Nicodemus on a map, Stockton is a town just right over to the east. Uh, there was a terminus right there. So it stopped right before it got to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was, wanted that terminus to connect in 1888, and they decided not to. And that was the death knell of the town. Uh, to the north of it, Lenora, which connected to another. And Kansas had all the railroads because Kansas was the start of the, the Santa Fe Trail, the Oregon Trail, the California Trail. Everyone who was ever going to the west crossed through Kansas because that was the most direct route to get down to whatever trail you wanted to go to. And so it made sense when the railroads were being built. All the railroads just went out from there. Um, so anyways, they, they all passed over. And Salinas was the, the big one, which kind of follows I-70 today, to Colby. And they all there's just this little circle in the middle of Kansas. And Nicodemus just happens to be in there. And mm. you can't help but think... It's conspicuous. You know, Intentional. As to why. Who knows? I mean, again, it's the, the the area sucks, but it wasn't for technological marvels or know-how. Like, yeah, there probably was no grain there, but it's I don't know. It, it's a it's a bummer. It's a whole one shame upon another shame. So, in conclusion, in 1870, Kansas had hosted a black population of about 16,000 people uh, in 1870. Ten years later, in 1880. 
some 43,110 African Americans called Kansas home, roughly 27,000 more people. Today, there's about 167,000. In fact, there's 167,864 uh, black or African Americans in Kansas, 5% of the population. Today, if you wanted to, like I said, you can go visit Nicodemus. You can also go to the Homestead National Monument in Beatrice, Nebraska. Why Beatrice? Because the very first homesteader, Daniel Freeman, because of course Freeman was his name, come on. Daniel Freeman was the first guy to apply for the Homestead Act, and he got it. And he took his family to what became Beatrice, Nebraska, and then he longs passed away, obviously. Um, they built a museum, which I've been to. And on your way, you can go to Nicodemus, and then you can stop in Lebanon, which is the geographic center of the United States. Wow. And then you can jump into Nebraska, keep heading east, and then hit up, hit up Beatrice. Beatrice. We should do a ghost town road trip. There's so many ghost towns in, in Kansas. It is incredible. Yeah, I've never been to one. But anyways, that is um, that is the Exodusters. So essentially, I mean, there's tons of... I mean, there were... Um, one of the original people that... Uh, one of the kids who lived in Nicodemus, I remember reading an article... I've also written stories about this. I was I was really into this when I moved to Kansas. Was I mean I was writing a book at the time about Kansas. I was so obsessed, and there was an article of one of the original people that were born there died in like 1997. I think it was the last last person born in Nicodemus. There's no you know hospitals or anything like that. It's a really there's like 10, 20 houses. I mean no one lives there. Wow. It's more of just sort of a monument to the past where it's got the school, but it's not a functioning school. Everybody else is bust out, but. It's got this big plaque, and you can see it, but it's kind of depressing place. Yeah. But it's something that's important, you know. And, and if you're out in the world, it's you never think of it as a place that you want to stop in, but there's always history. There's always stuff happening. I mean, Beatrix. Beatrix, Nebraska. Come on, you could stop at a world-class museum. and You could. You could. So, Kelly, that's one aspect. The other aspect of the Ballad of Hollis Brown is somebody who stayed, somebody who did not end up going. If we're believing this to be the 1800s, none of this really matters or applies, I mean, depending on how late in the 1800s. But if we take Hollis Brown as somebody who came in the Exoduster movement, um, things go really bad for Hollis Brown. Hollis Brown ends up murdering his entire family. So we're going to talk about the scenario in a moment, but let's get morbid. And all the kids are doing true crime. So this is Sign on the Window Presents... True crime. Is that how they talk on true crime podcasts? No, they get really loaded and then just like oh. spout off about a bunch of bullshit. So just lay back upon your deathbed gaze. Idiotically back up the chain of command from which we This is Daniel. I'm editing this this episode currently. I'm here to interrupt this broadcast, essentially, to say that we're going to be splitting this in two. I did not realize at the time of recording that we spend about an hour 
on on true crime related to uh, the subject matter in Hollis Brown. So, as a special treat, especially for our final episode, we will do a final mixed-up confusion. We'll bring it back for a special uh, true crime edition. That said, let's return to the podcast already in progress. Don't kill your family. Don't kill your family. Don't kill anybody. Yeah, so let's so let's take all those real world examples. We don't have I none of them. Even even knowing all the details and stuff, I don't feel like I know them the way that I like I feel like I'm an, I'm on the inside of Hollis Brown's head. Mm-hmm. Hollis Brown is better than a true crime podcast. I said it. <laughs> I said it. I said it. Well, this is also I hope you enjoyed that. This will never happen again. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's a perfect coda for Woody Guthrie Month. I mean, this is a song that could have been on the Dust Bowl Ballad Blues. Oh, absolutely. Um, and nice use of the word coda. Because it's over. It is. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it's a beautiful song. I mean, let, let's just kind of like touch on things as we go along. So right away, I was drawn to like, I was drawn to the music. I thought Bob alone with his guitar was beautiful. As Michael Gray said, uh, the guitar work and the melodic structuring of Hollis Brown were taken from the Appalachians, quote, where such forms and modes had evolved in comparative isolation, bold comparative isolation, over the period of almost 200 years. We talked about Little Maggie, same thing, Appalachian ballad, white ballad, blue, blues, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. being brought back by Dylan in the 90s. But this is the 60s. This is Appalachian country music, you know, and wherever that came from is another discussion. But we have something growing in isolation for 200 years and you know pretty peggy like we talked about is sort of part of that and i think dylan did an amazing job of inhabiting that like his voice is really he does the same thing here as he does in, in seven curses which is he tells the story straight there's no inflection there's no judgment nothing he's just telling the story so he's hollis brown you are you you are hollis brown he is hollis brown we are Hollis Brown, but there's no judgments being made, which is really effective in Seven Curses, and is really effective here. Yeah, it's uh, the so the first verse is where he's basically saying, "I'm going to tell you a story about Hollis Brown," and then the and now we're talking second person instead of third, and then the very last verse we're back to third person. Yeah. Like this, that was a story of Hollis Brown. How yeah. do you feel, basically? Yeah. Um, it's so good. It's really good. You know I'm a fan of just Bob Dylan and guitar. Yeah. Um, Even just knowing The Seven Curses, like, that was such a great song. It's such a great, like, little world that it built. Yeah. And not every Bob Dylan song, clearly, this year, we have not had some songs that build a world. <laughs> but even without Seven Curses, this is, like, a built-in world. You can feel it. You can just feel it. Absolutely. In every little fiber of being, it feels like... Just like Seven Curses, it feels like sometimes when he's singing and the silence and just the strumming, you get that that desolation, that isolation, that separateness from the rest of the world. And I think the same thing here. Absolutely. You could really, nothing changes. The song is the same throughout. We're doing the same melody, the same chords throughout the entire song. And considering it's five minutes long, I would, if I had listened to another Bob Dylan song that was five minutes long, I'd be like, oh shit, I'm going to hate this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I never Usually got bored. I never got bored even for a second. We did listen to six different versions of this song. Um, we did. And the Whitmark demo, mm-hmm. I did feel that. And especially the 774 recording, uh, that was like the weird, that one was not great. It wasn't the whole song and it was like with the full band. But yeah. the Whitmark demo was just him and a guitar from 63. Yeah. And 
that one felt I felt every minute of it. Right. Whereas the I thought the Times Area Changing version was the best one to me personally. The vocal performance, the Amazing. the Town Hall one, I think the the quality of his voice is the best, but yeah. the um, song itself is not as good because the way he's playing his guitar, he's only hitting the higher notes. Um, so you don't get that don't, don't, which is really important to drive this song. There's seven people dead on a South Dakota farm. There's seven people dead on a South Dakota farm. Somewhere in the distance, there's seven new people born. Um, this is the same problem as he played Song to Woody at the same show. Oh, okay. And, so know, it could be the recording. Well, not only that, but it's also playing live versus, you know, it's stretching it out. It's changing it a little bit. It's giving the song a little bit more air to breathe. When you're just playing it, yeah. his songs are way more snappy when he's just sitting and recording. Yeah. But the live version, I'm with you. It's like the, the recording quality is so crisp. His voice sounds so good. But that guitar work is lost because mm-hmm. he's not playing it as... As perfect because he's standing there. He's, if he was sitting down, if he was noodling, I mean, maybe I get something's it. But, different, but you really totally change the song when you don't have that bass in there. Yeah. From and I know it's just the one guitar, but if you're not hitting those strings, you're missing that entire bass line. Mm-hmm. So I would say the guitar performance in the studio version, the times are changing, is the best. But the vocal performance in that um, town hall one from '63 is it's fucking amazing. I I don't know how they got that sound. It's just it, impeccable. It's so good. It's like my favorite record i'm so glad we're getting a lot of it because i don't listen to it on its own because the songs i i agree with you they're not as as essential if i'm gonna listen to hoss brown i'm going for times if i'm listening to seven curses i'm going for the studio version you know we we have live other live versions too of that and we said the same thing this town hall is great but it's not as good it's just not as good as him sitting in the studio doing it i, I think that happened on um Hard Times in New York Town yeah. also. Mm-hmm. The Mark demo just didn't feel as, as good nope. as the studio version. No, because even the demo, it's like, yeah, you're you're emphasizing different syllables. You're diff- you know, because you want other... The whole point of that was to get people to listen to it and then interpret it. It, it kind of like a perverse way of like ye heavy and a bottle of bread from last week where, you know, you're creating this weird demo thing where you're just creating like lyrics for people to then sing to. You know, you're creating notes for someone to be able to base a song off of but without no, even yourself it, yeah without hearing it you wouldn't even know how fucking absurd it is or anything like that but i think with the whitmark demos it's a more straightforward version of that which is here are the words and stuff like that but hey i'm also going to give you this demo version of me doing it so it's even easier for you to sing along you know and i think a lot of people did this it's just that bob dylan is able to release a version of this 50 years later and people will lap it up because bob dylan became bob dylan I'm sure every artist in the 60s, 50s, 60s probably had something similar to the Whitmark demos, you know, trying to sell their songs. Yeah, probably. And they just sang along. It doesn't have to sound that great. It's just getting the point across for Peter, Paul, and Mary to pick up and sing. That was his whole goal. So We also get an extra verse. Uh, the studio version, mm-hmm. or the Times Together Changing version, does not include the verse that's in almost all the other ones of the six we listen to, which is there's bedbugs on your babies, uh, there's cinches on your wife. Yeah. Uh, 
which I mean, it we're we're painting the same picture. We're just defining it a little bit more with that extra verse. We still know th- shit's dire, um, yeah. but that just adds a little bit more flavor. Like now we can see. I think the the some of the discussion I saw was basically taking that out. Get like stops giving too much information about Hollis Brown, so it allows us because with that it's like he was clearly something was troubling him. There was even an ailment, if you will, like bed bugs were almost spurring him on. It's like if you remove that, then you just have a man who you just kind of learn his plight a little bit, but then he reacts in this way. So there's not even hmm. like a a push. Like so the bed bugs are almost a push to doing something. Um, so we're taking out the empathy. So you, yeah, so you take that out. So now you have to be in it mm-hmm. fully. Like you can't just be like, oh, now I can imagine bed bugs. Oh my god, now I'm like really agitated. Well, of course, you would kill something. everyone. Well, I know, I know. <laughs> is, I think it's not as simple. But as still, that. like you're still. you're adding an extra layer of oh, I like that is dire. The, like, yeah, it's even and you still worse. get that flavor for sure. Yeah, but I could. It does feel superfluous. Yeah, cutting like a knife. I mean, it's like. Yeah, it, it, it every green? day, every oh yeah, exactly. So it's like it's even worse than you think it is. But that's what I like the best is the imagery. Like when he talks, obviously about the you know, I love the sevens repeating with seven curses. It's so great. I'm glad. I we just want to listen beforehand. to seven curses now. I know, right? But like seven shotgun shells, you know, five and his wife. He, they don't explicitly say that until the very end, where he's collecting it all and it mm-hmm. all pays off in the end, which I thought was great. Seven breezes. Um, I love the black grass. Uh, the bad blood got your mare. I love that because, like, there's a mm-hmm. whole thing about, like, bloodletting with horses. Uh, oh, really? Cold, yeah, which is kind of the bad blood. Got your mare. Well, that was the answer to a lot of ailments, human and otherwise. It, exactly. Just drain your blood. And that's what blood. takes you back to, like, the 1800s. It takes you back to, like, a leeches. time before you. Bring on the leeches. You get your leeches. I guess you get your cinches. That's how you do it. <laughs> uh, and then, like, cold coyote calls. Like, they call more in the cold. It's, like, those little tiny things that really, like, build the story. And I like that. This was really intentional. Versus last Very week, intentional. which was a ramshackle of a song. This is a really intentional song. Like, I'm telling a very specific story, which was very cool. I completely agree. Yeah, back to Horowitz. He says, quote, A striking example of a tough, ironic insight one associates with the blues and also of the power of understatement, which Dylan has learned from Woody Guthrie, is to be found in the final lines of Hollis Brown. There's seven people dead on a South Dakota farm. Seven people dead on a South Dakota farm. Somewhere in the distance, there's seven new people born. So that, this song is a bummer. I don't often listen to it on my own free will. It's so pretty, though. It's so beautiful, but it's so destructive. And it sticks with you. It's one of those that I don't want to listen to for fun. You almost need a reason for doing it. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, I I, I got it. It's not really going to go away for me. And the thing that I always like the most for my entire life is that final verse. What do you make of it? Uh, we talked briefly yeah. and you like reincarnation. It seems like a really, like it's a good fit and that's totally valid. Like some people are really against that as being basically against the ethos of the song. Okay. Um, I thought just because of Bob Dylan, I was like, possibly this is heaven. Like they're born again in the kingdom um, of God, the, the seven new people born into heaven. Um, or just like the balance of life. Like, these seven people are are dead, but seven more will take their place. Like life moves on, and and maybe the seven people that were born into existence couldn't have if they weren't gone. Like I, I think it. Well, that's a reincarnation thing. Yeah, that's all true. A balance yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I think it's like it's one of two things, and that's why 
I, I like the reincarnation one. And that's the way I always sort of weirdly interpreted it as like an optimistic tone. I mean, oh, it's so weird because you don't want to be optimistic about like something like that because I think we do that with the poor. We're always like, they'll be fine. They'll make it out of it. You know, it'll be fine. Yeah. They'll be fine. But in reality, it's like it's, it isn't that simple. But the other option is that essentially nothing changes. Like, I think it's, oh, I guess I just don't want to believe it's the bleakest song ever because if it isn't, that if it's no if there's no hope to be found then essentially you're saying there's seven new people born in this desolate wasteland and they're gonna die just like you oh jeez like there's seven more people that take yeah. your fucking place in hell how about yeah. it good for you <laughs> yeah it's cool. like yeah the world spews forth more spawn before they too become consumed by again like th- those kids didn't have a say in what yeah. happened they were brutally murdered um but when you're off in the distance, seven new people are born. It's like it's another chance. You know, it's terrible in this iteration, but it could be okay in the next. Yeah. But if you're born in the same place, could it be okay? Probably if you're white versus if you're black. Right. And I think that makes it even more bleak. Well, yeah. I, I typically don't like reincarnation stuff because I think it's I think it's an excuse like like bug creatures are running uh, the lizard, lizard people. people are running the government. It's a reason for an action today because. It doesn't matter, you know, like in the next life, everything will be happy. And that's what religious cults do. That's what religion does. It, it eases your mind today so that you can believe that the afterlife is better. But in reality, you have nothing to believe that it's not going to just be darkness. So why don't we make this life better? And I think when you start romanticizing these things, I get it. It's problematic. But I want to believe <laughs> that these kids got a fair shake in some, you know, universal justice system you know and that hollis brown for all of his faults and and maybe it's not us to up to us to judge someone like him because he won't be judged positively by anybody it wasn't his he shouldn't have made he's it's not up to him to make that decision um i'll leave that to a supreme power to do and i think when you leave out the details we start building our own and that makes it a fucking amazing song we could also spin this out into a lot of the murders we researched were men who were at their financial ends financial just like hollis brown Mm -hmm. maybe we should talk about wealth inequality in this country maybe we should talk about that a little bit i think so i think (laughs) and i think we've done it we've not only done that but we've also talked about even like the women that murdered them it was the same thing we they felt like they couldn't support five kids on a farm and so they murdered them i mean that leap right there i think today we see that as a mentally unstable person and rightfully so you know evil is not to believe that evil is like a thing is something that like people want to sell to you in reality everyone has good and everyone has evil that's what make not makes nazis scary because they're not incarnate evil they're just normal people that's what makes them terrifying and so when you have situations that bring relatively normal people to this brink that means that you could do this i could do this right and, and I think that's what makes it scarier. With our healthcare being taken away or the threat of such. Or, or not even having it back in the halls from yeah. days, you know, there's no, no such thing. And not having a good job of work to do. Yeah. In the words of Woody Guthrie. Or being an outsider in a yeah. world that affluence is over here and you can't even be, you can't parlay with it in any way. Yeah. That's devastating. And that's that can totally ruin Not it. out of touch and not out of this era. Like, we're dealing with that right now. Absolutely, we are. So. Holy shit, Hollis Brown. Holy shit, Hollis Brown. And I want to, before we even leave it, this is episode 40, Kelly. This is our last episode. This Ever! 
for the season. <laughs> we'll be back in 2018, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christmas is coming. <laughs> what? And so is the recommendation. This is our final recommendation for the year. So wow. uh, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about recommendations and stuff later. But what's your final recommendation for these people? What else have you been living with? Hollis Brown, it's taken up your mind. A lot of serial killers and murder. What else you got? La Chica. La Chica. La Chica. Oasis is the name of the EP that she made this year. Um, it's really, really fucking good. It's only five tracks. Um, four of the songs are in Spanish. But it's it's like old Sia, like kind of zero seven Sia, where it's like trancy a little bit and uh, less poppy for sure. But it's right up my alley of like weird ambient strings. Cool. But she has a really beautiful voice. And um, I, yeah, I just kind of happened upon it. I think I was listening to other like... EDM trance stuff I listen to, and I put on like radio. I was like, "Ooh, what is this?" So, Oasis okay. by La Chica, 2017, great. The other thing I found, which is a piggyback to you from last week, somebody who I don't super dig, Sufjan Stevens. I don't hate Sufjan. Whoa, that's for sure. What's going on but here? Again, through this, I, it must have been some playlist I was listening to. The rate, oh, it was Spotify's radio. That's how this happened. Okay. You mentioned an album that came out of his recently the greatest last week. Gift. Yeah. The Greatest Gift. Okay. He also came out with an album in collaboration with some other artists this year called Planetarium, mm-hmm. which is fucking amazing. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's it's Sufjan Stevens, but also Bryce Dessner, James McAllister. Right? Oh, from The National? Mm-hmm. Really? I think one of them is. I think it's Bryce. Uh. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Uh, James McAllister and Nico Mulhey. They all do scores. They're all or- orchestral musicians. As far as I could tell, they've done movie so- scores and and they're just like. Well, Sufjan um, did a um a whole electronic scout soundscape to the BQE the the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. Yeah, so uh, Planetarium is it's um you can split up electronic music and a lot of different things. I have a, a space dust playlist that's specifically <laughs> like you're floating. So in the space. whole thing got on. Um no, but but most of it yeah it's it's so it's very. It's ambient electronica, but it's still like think of uh, the movie Moon with Sam Rockwell. Mm-hmm. That kind of just like alone in space, like really, that vibe. Yeah, it's good. Planetarium definitely fits. It's fucking awesome. So there you go. Hell so if you're yeah. on along with three friends, three friends, one from the National. We let you pick which one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're all from the National. Who fucking knows? Final of the season. I'm gonna recommend a couple bands that. I, um, it's usually about this time of year where I'm like, oh my God, there's so many records. I got to clear out my new in 2017 playlist that's just been accumulating over the past. It's coming to an end. It's coming to an end. I got to start my new in 2018. I got to start my 2018 uh, playlist. Um, a couple of bands that I've never heard of. These are albums that I listened to this week. One, Jetty Bones, Crucial States. This is from 2016. It's just a girl and her guitar. It's great. Nice. Emperor X, Oversleepers International. This is a weird one. This is a verbose motherfucker with lots and lots of words. Over... Rapper, right? No, no, no. Just oh. like a, he's like a singer or songwriter. He's got kind of a whiny voice. Love it. He's like just so many words. Interesting. I thought it was a rapper. But he also does ambient stuff too. There's like eleven minute track that's just like this crazy droning. Uh, the Newports. That's fine. They fucking rock. Never heard of them before. One of the worst covers for an album I've ever seen. Great, but it's only an EP. The same with um, Jetty Bones. Uh, apparently, I'm, I'm I'm believing that they came to me in some way because there's like a full length coming, but one full length that I've regrettably not listened to. And you might like them too if you want like some 
like Slater Kinney type of shit. Oh yeah. Slut face. Try not to freak out. And that slut face, the U doesn't exist. It's an O. It's that O with, with the, the cross, cross through it. it. Yeah. But it's pronounced slut face. I saw that you were listening to that on Spotify last week. Yeah. Oh my god. They fucking rock. I, I didn't listen to yeah, it. Yeah. It is. It is blistering. So totally recommend that. And then keeping on the Hollis Brown, because that's the episode. Um, two books that I want to recommend. Uh, one is called Bad, Badland, uh, an American romance by Jonathan Rabin. Uh, it tells a story of settle, settlers coming to eastern Montana uh, in the early 1900s. So it's really like a romantic. He's coming from Seattle, so he's like traveling. This was set in 1997-ish. Um, but one of the places in uh, Ismay, uh, Montana, renamed themselves Joe Montana. <laughs> um, to try to get, they wanted to get on Letterman. So, like, part of mm. the story was like following its journey and trying to get like people to come back because this place was not nobody could really live there, and and they sold it as a place that you could farm and it was beautiful. It was like the Midwest, but really, it's a fucking desert. If anybody's driven through Eastern Montana, it's you can't really you're eking out a life there. And then I want to recommend a book that I read a long time ago, uh, which is called Exodusters, Black Migration to Kansas After Reconstruction by Nell Irvin Painter, who's one of the foremost Midwestern scholars, you know, talking about the black experience in the Midwest. Um, It's one of the first books that I read to Kansas when when I got to Kansas, because I was super interested in I don't know why I just like fell in love with Kansas history and I was obsessed with John Brown before I even got there because he was killed in Harpers Ferry in West Virginia so it's like it was always a part of my life just being in Virginia sorry and then one book I have not read but I think might be interesting if anybody else is really interested in Exodusters or Hollis Brown or anything or like Exo that Squad? not the Exosquad <laughs> <laughs> yes the, 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 the TV show has been condensed into a book no, it's actually called The Conquest, um, The Story of a Negro Pioneer, uh, 1913 by Oscar Michaud. Now, he homesteaded in Gregory County, South Dakota, which is southern South Dakota, hemmed in by the Missouri River, uh, south of Chamberlain, if you're coming down the Missouri. But he's more famous for making films. He made 40, uh, more than 40 at the end of his life. Um, the first one was called, the, he turned The Conquest, the book, into a movie called The Homesteader. Um, and it was the first movie. It's now a lost silent film. There's no, you can't, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, but it's believed to be the first feature length film made with a black cast and crew for a black audience. And that's the first example of a race movie. Uh, Tyler Perry has just been cast to play him in an HBO biopic. Hmm. But yeah, he was one of the foremost black directors. And he's still regarded today with with the other movies that he's done, which I, I can't even comprehend i can't even get into because i don't know much about that world um still held in high regard and and a lot of that was filmed in south dakota which i think is even more badass and he was kind of an outsider an outside filmmaker so he wasn't a part of the hollywood system because he was black and had black film stars and all that kind of stuff so there was a whole like the lincoln motion picture company and all this stuff like even just a tertiary glance at everything it's like oh man there's the whole world that was existing in america simultaneous to the golden age if you will of, of hollywood um and that's fascinating i just don't know anything about it yeah so oscar well, michelle intentional unfortunately. absolutely and oscar michelle i read the book i put it on my goodreads i'm hoping someday to read it it's all about his life in south dakota as a homesteader he had kind of a crazy life up to that point but it's also more than a homestead thing it's like a falling apart of a marriage you know sort of being out there all alone in the middle of nowhere, I believe we just heard a song about somebody who is very much like that. That sounds that. familiar. Less of the murder. That's good. 
which makes it more wholesome for the family. So, uh, so you can't go watch The Homesteader because it's a, it's a lost movie. Did you know that we are a real podcast? I found that out last week. Yeah, you probably did because I'm not really good about telling people <laughs> that we're a real podcast. So this is actually episode 40. That believe. sounds really impressive. This is a lot more impressive than 39. We're going to get into... Or even 41 for what it's worth. So we are not going to be back next week. We won't. We are going to be on Twitter though. If you have been following us, as I mentioned before, SOTWpod, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, all that kind of Dot stuff. .com. Dot com, SOTWpod.com, of course. Always. I mean, that should be your homepage. Open up Show your browser. Notes, boom. Playlists. So many things. There's so much. And you can just delve into whatever songs you want. You can see what else is coming up. We have a little Halloween list for next year. Get ready for Halloween. I mean, oh my gosh. it's 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 absolutely incredible. <laughs> but we are going to be taking some time off for mental health. It's going to be great. It's the holidays, y'all. It's the holidays. It's time to listen to podcasts, not to make them. I think that's, we can all agree on that, I think. Kelly, I would love a place where you and I could, I don't know, talk about the last year of this podcast, but I don't know possibly on like what day that could happen. If there's like a, like a communal holiday where Tuesday. people come together. It could be a Wednesday. It could also be Christmas Day. Oh. That's right, Kelly. We are going to meet up on Christmas Day 2017. Are we? We are. And we are going to talk about Bob Dylan's Christmas in the Heart. Oh my God, it's called Christmas in the Heart. It's called Christmas in the Heart. And the only way... (laughs) Sorry. The only way to create Christmas traditions... Is to start. Yeah. You know, the only way to make a podcast is to fucking start. We did that. We started that last February. So we're not getting to a full year, but it feels natural to call it a, a nice little solid. So we're going to take off a little bit of time. We're going to come back on December 25th, back into your feed. So if you're with your family, uh, you're getting bored with them. You got your Christmas presents. You did your stuff. You're going home now. Uh, feel free to put us on as you're kind of going through all your stuff or just kind of chilling. Thematically, you're like, I wish two of my friends would talk about Bob Dylan's Christmas album. <gasps> we can provide that Amazing. You. you can listen to the album, which we encourage everyone to do every week. So if you're new to this, listen. Listen to Bob Dylan's Christmas album. And then you can also listen to our playlist, which we will put up uh, pretty much at the end of this episode once it's all over. I mean, if we have to listen to it, you should have to listen to it. I don't like Christmas. Kelly loves Christmas. I do. Can you already sense the tension in the room? It's like things have shifted. It's like things have shifted. It's amazing. So we're going to talk about that on Christmas Day. We hope that you'll, you'll come by. See you.